Welcome to the second series of the Cutting Edge Issues podcast from the Department of International Development at the LSE. These podcasts are recordings from the Cutting Edge Issues in Development, Thinking and Practice lecture series for the academic year 2021-2022. This series of guest lectures is coordinated by me, Duncan Green, Professor in Practice in the Department, and the Professor of Development Studies, James Putzel. Each week in the Cutting Edge series, Renowned guest lecturers share their expertise and spark discussion on an exciting range of issues, from the battle over COVID vaccines with Jayati Ghosh, to what's wrong with aid with Claire Short, to the political economy of Parasite, the Oscar-winning movie with Harjun Chang. Since 2020, the series has taken place online, enabling us to host fantastic speakers from around the world and to stream the lectures via this podcast and on YouTube, opening them up to a global audience. I hope you enjoy the lecture. We start um, today in the second half of term with, you know, quite a lineup of very articulate and powerful women who will be speaking to us today and through the rest of the term. Uh, today's topic, well, you know, we could not have an issue to discuss today that's more topical or of the moment or more important. Uh, with Dayati Ghosh talking to us about access to vaccines and the limiting roles of intellectual property rights and pharma monopolies. And we know that while we are rolling out the vaccine and now even into booster shots in many of the OECD and rich countries, for many of the poorest countries, ordinary people have yet to see any sign of the vaccine. I, I actually want, before I introduce the speaker, tell just a little anecdote to set up the kind of sense of inequality that exists around the rollout of the vaccine. Um, a German friend of mine uh, was reading an article from a local German paper to me just yesterday, and it was about BioNTech, the inventors of COVID-19 vaccine, often called Pfizer, but they're the ones who invented it. Uh, and they have a headquarters in the city of Mainz in Germany. And the company for the last few years has had great losses. Uh, that's a different story, a story of German government support, uh, an industrial policy, policy story in developing the vaccine. But of course, it's been very successful. And in Germany, in every city, there's a site of collection of business taxes. So in the city of Mainz, where one of the centers of production is for, for BioNTech, Pfizer, um, they are expecting um, business tax income of between 800 million and 1 billion euros this year. They had gone from a, from a deficit of 36 million in the whole and business tax income to plus 1.09 billion euros this year. So we can see how not only the businesses, but the communities of the North are, uh, are having a windfall in relationship to the vaccines while there is such a scarcity in the developing countries. Um, Jayati Ghosh is a very eminent scholar. She's speaking to us today from Delhi, though she has joined recently the University of Massachusetts at Amherst as professor in economics. She's taught at JNU University in Delhi for nearly 35 years, which I find very hard to believe. Um, and um, she has written 
extensively, uh, publishing or editing uh, 20 books. Uh, most recently, coming out this year, is The Making of Catastrophe, COVID-19 and the Indian Economy, which we heard an account of last year. We were lucky enough to have Jayati last year speaking to us. She's also written uh, um, a book, uh, When Governments Fail, COVID-19 and, uh, and the Economy, also published 2021. Jayati has worked on women, on poverty. Uh, she has won a raft of prizes, which I won't go through because they'll take up all our time, except to mention the International Labor Organization's Decent Work Research Prize back in 2011, and the Nord Sud Prize for Social Sciences in 2010 in Italy. Uh, she's a very eminent scholar, and we're lucky to have her. As a discussant, I'm also delighted to welcome Professor uh, Kevin Watkins, who's professor in practice at our own Africa Center at the LSE. He is the recently um, finished a term as the chief executive officer of Save the Children UK. Um, he has previously been director of the Overseas Development Institute in London, and he was director of the UN's Human Development Report Office um, and authored uh, a number of reports from UNDP. Kevin, in his own right, has been working on vaccines and vac access to vaccines in the developing world long before the pandemic. And I, I'm really happy that he could join us today. So without further ado, may I turn it over to you, Jayati? Thank you so much. It's a great pleasure to be with you all. I still have very pleasant memories of the lively discussion we had last year when I had virtually again joined you. Yeah, so I think James already put it out about what I'm going to be talking about and it's, it's kind of evident. But let me just begin by um, suggesting that there is something about this pandemic which makes it quite unusual. I mean, of course it is, already very unusual because it's the first really major global pandemic that we've had since the Spanish flu in that sense. But what was intriguing about this one is that in the first wave, the rich countries were more affected. And uh, of course it began in China, but it was relatively rapidly contained. It was really in the province of Wuhan and subsequently in a few of the major cities. But thereafter it spread very quickly to Europe and then the United States. and we found that both morbidity and mortality were actually more significant in the rich countries in the first wave of the pandemic. And I believe that this actually affected the scale of the policy response, uh, both the scale and the speed of the, and the nature of the policy response, uh, which we have seen enforced globally, if you like. It was essentially designed for more advanced economies. But mind you, it was implemented first in Wuhan in China, but which in some ways has some of those features of advanced economies in the sense that it has a very strong control and regulatory powers over the population. It is able to bring in social protection measures for when you deny people livelihood and employment. And so it could impose lockdown. So the whole nature of the treatment through the lockdown rather than other means was something that was 
designed for more advanced economies rather than developing countries which are heavily informal where there's very little social protection or compensation for loss of livelihood and where people also live in very crowded congested areas where physical distancing is really quite difficult. Now, the fact that the rich countries were the most affected also affected the speed of the response and the urgency. I just want to remind you, we've had other epidemics in the recent past. The fact, yes, this is the global pandemic, but we've had, the, well, we still have, in fact, the Zika virus, which is making a comeback in parts of India right now again. We've had the H1N1, we've had the Ebola virus, we've had swine flu, the avian flu. So we've had a whole range of different epidemics that have been quite lethal in parts of the developing world. We haven't got vi vaccines for any of them really. We, the Ebola virus took, I think, eight years to get developed and none of the others has actually got any kind of vaccine response. So in a sense, the urgency about vaccine development, the fact that governments were willing to put in lots of money to ensure that vaccines got developed very quickly and then authorize them for emergency use, again, very quickly. All of this reflected the fact that, you know, the North was really very, very affected in the first phase. And of course, as I, you know, as I mentioned here, that, that really means that both the nature of the disease and the nature of the response reflected global inequality and the power imbalances. And of course, in a peculiar way, they have added to them. So uh, a friend of mine, the economist uh, Subramaniam, who used to be in Madras Institute of Development Studies, he, he says some viruses are more equal than others. And you can see that COVID-19 has definitely been more equal in that sense, in terms of eliciting very, very sharp and dramatic response uh, from northern governments. But subsequently, the second and third waves have been much more devastating in the global south, both in terms of morbidity and mortality. And that has a lot to do with the spread of vaccination or the lack of vaccination. Okay, now here is the fact, the, the total mortality data. This is cumulative deaths from COVID. Uh, the trouble with this, of course, is that a lot of the developing world has massive undercounting of deaths. In India, my own country, the excess mortality uh, that we know over this period is, uh, again, we have undercounting even of mortality, but is anywhere between four to seven times the official data, the excess mortality during this period. Now, now not all of that would have been COVID related, but a very large proportion would be. And I think everybody knows the, the images of the bodies floating down the, the Ganges River, the, you know, the terrible stories of crematoria being overburdened and all of that is now globally recognized. So we have to take these data with a bit of pinch of salt. Nevertheless, it's evident that according to the official data, the United States and Brazil have the worst impact in terms of mortality. And uh, Europe, Russia, etc., they are also very high mortality relative to a lot of the developing world. But as I mentioned, the third, the second and third waves have been quite devastating in a number of countries. Uh, we now find uh, in India, for example, now I don't know if you can see it very clearly, it's one of the ones which is relatively lower down. Why? Because these are cases per million. There are, there's undercounting of cases in the developing countries and especially in India. 
but also we have lots of people. So everything looks less per million, right, uh, in India. But nonetheless, you find that the second wave in India was significantly more brutal and more uh, impactful in terms of deaths. Uh, the second wave in South Africa was also, South Africa actually had three significant waves and then a, a fourth one, which was slightly less. But what's interesting is that you also get recent waves, once again, in the United States, in Europe and Russia. And these have, uh, these are not as lethal. They have not resulted in as many deaths. But it's interesting that despite the fact that the North has largely uh, hoarded, grabbed and hoarded vaccines, you still find the resurgence of this disease. And I'll, I'll come back to that. It's definitely less, it's not as lethal, but it is, is still there. So I talked about the inequality, one of the most obvious examples of inequality is uh, the vaccine production and distribution. And that's really because First of all, there was a vaccine grab by rich countries. What do I mean by this? Well, let's go back a little bit in terms of how these vaccines were developed at all. Uh, uh, I think James just mentioned that BioNTech was uh, the inventor of uh, one particular mRNA vaccine. But um, in fact, it wasn't, you know, it's really the last, the last mile development. 90% of the knowledge required to produce mRNA vaccines was done in public labs, in labs in Hungary, in London, and in Pennsylvania. And these are publicly funded labs with public researchers. In fact, the Hungarian guy who brought in this whole mRNA technology, it was originally designed to address cancer. Uh, his, I can't remember his name, which will tell you about how he is not a household name, even though he's really responsible for this technology. The last mile research was done by some private companies, BioNTech, Moderna, and so on, entirely enabled by public funding. BioNTech got 470 million euro, I think, from the German government. Moderna, almost entirely R&D was funded by the US government. And uh, there was massive subsidies given by the US gave $12 billion to six companies, you know, lots of European governments gave money to certain companies. I'll come to the story of AstraZeneca and England a bit later. But when these vaccines got developed, and remember it's very rapid, this is the most rapid development of vaccines ever in the history of the world. We've never had such rapid development. And then they were also approved very quickly. It was emergency approval. And in fact, some of that could explain vaccine hesitancy, which has appeared in so many places, because most vaccines on average have taken three to four years just for the approval process, because you test for everything. You test for whether it is going to impact you and the, the person in different ways and over time and different categories of people and etc. And here it was, you know, pretty much the minute phase three was ongoing or almost over, you got emergency approval. Okay, so then the vaccines, the early approvals come by early October 2020, just slightly more than a year ago. Within a few weeks, the rich countries had actually grabbed 85% of the production capacity for the next one year through advance orders of uh, these vaccines. 
And the rich countries account for about 16% of global population, but they had grabbed 85% of the uh, available supply, the likely supply of the major six candidates, which means Pfizer, BioNTech, AstraZeneca, and a bunch of others, Novavax, uh, Johnson & Johnson, and so on. So there was a vaccine grab. And so uh, extensive was this vaccine grab that many governments bought many times what they needed. The US bought four times its requirement of vaccines. Canada bought 11 times its requirement of vaccines. The UK, I think, bought twice or three times what it needs and so on and so forth. You get the general idea. It's not just the vaccine grab, it's also the fact that even though it was really public research or publicly funded research that had enabled this technology to be developed, the patent rights were all given to the private pharma companies, to big pharma. And then these patent rights, these intellectual property rights have been protected by the rich country governments who continue to enable these companies to earn super profits from this vaccine. And so we've seen the use of vaccine distribution to promote nationalism. I mean, really quite obscene vaccine nationalism at one level, but then also diplomatic soft power. You know, there was a lot of accusations when China started uh, providing its vaccines. It's had, it has two major vaccine candidates that have both been WHO approved now, Sinopharm and Sinovac. And uh, the US was furious, the European Union was furious and actually told countries not to accept it. Saying that, you know, China's just trying to give you this vaccine which is not reliable. And uh, so there's all kinds of things that went on with respect to vaccine distribution. Now, when you think about it, this is bizarre because it's a pandemic, right? I mean, the virus does not recognize country categories. It doesn't say, okay, here's my visa, here's my passport, I will stop at this border. It goes wherever it can. And so you will not be able to overcome this pandemic unless you overcome it everywhere. That, I mean, it's a no brainer really, right? It should be so obvious. But what is also true is that even if you manage to contain it within your own country, once you enable this virus to spread in the rest of the world, it will mutate. That's what viruses do. They're really good at it. They mutate. And then you will get new forms of new variants of the disease, which will require, as is happening right now, booster shots. We are very lucky that uh, so far, the mutant varieties have still remained susceptible to vaccines. But frankly, it's a matter of time until you get a new mutation that that is impervious to the vaccine. And the more you enable or allow this disease to spread in different parts of the world, the more likely it is that you will get these mutant varieties. I mean, we already know that there's a, there's a Delta Plus. Delta is the one that created havoc for the second and third waves. But Delta Plus is known to be more infectious, more deadly, and significantly less affected by the vaccine. So that whereas the vaccine would have given, let's say, 96% protection against the original variant and maybe 70% protection against the Delta variant, it gives around 60% for Delta Plus. And so that's why you find all these booster vaccines now coming up. It's partly that the immunity comes down and partly because there are new variants. And this, anyone could have told the rich country governments that this is going to happen. And in fact, everyone did tell them. The WHO has been saying this for a very long time, but 
we, we got what we got. Okay, now what we've got is vaccine apartheid. This is the story as of yesterday. That's as late, I mean, this is more than a year after the first vaccines were approved, okay? And yet, what do we see? We see that the US and Canada and China are the only countries where there's a really significant proportion of vaccine doses admit, administered per 100 people. Now notice the reason that this is going above 100 is because many of these vaccines require double dose, okay? And um, some require single dose only like Johnson & Johnson, but uh, most of them require double doses. And then you also have to throw boosters into the pot, right? Now they're also providing boosters and that's why you're getting numbers significantly above 100 over here. But look at the story for Africa where you know less than 5% of the population has been vaccinated. In India, even though in India as a producer of vaccines, less than 30% of the population has got both vaccine doses and, uh, and so on. I mean, you can see that this is very, very sharply uh, a north-south thing with the outliers being China and Chile. Chile is quite interesting. Chile really took the Chinese vaccines very early and did a major vaccination program to ensure that it would be safe. The other out, well, if you can see that little thing down there near the sea in the Mediterranean, that's Israel, which is another country that managed to get a, grab a lot of vaccines and uh, administer to around 90% of the population by now. But of course, in the developed countries, there's this other problem. In the developing world, it is largely lack of access. It's the fact that there are simply not enough vaccines available. In many other countries, it's vaccine hesitancy that is holding it back. The United States seems to be stuck at around 70% of the population because there's significant hesitancy among a certain category. And some of it is political, but some of it is, uh, is also you know, various fears that because this was emergency approval, because it's, we don't really know enough about it. I mean, some are anti-vaxxers about anything, right? They don't even want to get the smallpox vaccination. But there are people who fear that, th that these vaccines were not developed with due diligence and with enough time to really know what they imply. There's also the fact that the mRNA technology is a whole new technology. We've not had vaccines based on this technology before. And so that has been one of the reasons why there's hesitancy. But it also has to do with the extent of trust in the state and the kinds of polarization that you find in society. So another country with very strong vaccine hesitancy is Russia. Uh, I don't know if you can see it down here in the list. Let me see if I can find it for you. Um, but it has relatively low, there we go, Russia. Can you see it? This one here. And even though it has its own vaccine, it's only about 34% of the population has got even partly vaccinated, which is you know, similar to Bangladesh and South Africa, where the problem is lack of availability. Whereas in Russia, it is really hesitancy. So what's going on? What are the bottlenecks? Well, one, of course, is that over, overall, the supply is inadequate. 
and that's because of insufficient production. And I'll come back to this point because that is very strongly really related to the IPRs, the intellectual property rights. Then of course, the fact that the global distribution is skewed because of the vaccine grabbing that I had already mentioned. But it's also true that internal distribution in many countries has been messy and incompetent. That's been absolutely true in my own country, for example. And then the vaccine hesitancy that I already mentioned. Now, this wasn't supposed to happen, okay? There was a facility, COVAX, which was specifically designed to prevent this, the COVID-19 Vaccines Global Access Facility. And this is part of the WHO's ACT or ACT Accelerator, which has really three pillars, uh, which is one of which is uh, vaccine uh, distribution. Another part of it is technology access. So it has something called CTAP. But COVAX was led by the World Health Organization, uh, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, and the Vaccine Alliance, Gavi. Okay. And the whole purpose was to prevent hoarding by rich country governments and give equitable access. That was the stated purpose. Now, there are those who argue, and they've turned out to be correct, that COVAX was flawed in its very design. And some even argued that this this flaw in design was by intent rather than by accident. Uh, they point to the role of Bill Gates and other private philanthropists who play an unduly excessive role in determining global health policy and who were able to influence the decisions of COVAX in particular ways. So what's the overall idea? Well, first of all, it has covers most of the world's population, okay, 190 member countries, the US was originally out of it because of Trump, but uh, after Biden took over, they joined in February, 2021. And the whole way in which this is supposed to work is that all the member countries can access vaccines, but the rich and middle-income countries can buy the vaccines and contribute to the fund. And the money they contribute to the fund will then go to the making sure that the 92 lower income countries who are part of it will get their doses free of charge. The idea was that every country will first get 3% of the population covered, which is you know, frontline health workers and those specially at risk. Then 20% coverage, which is supposed to cover the elderly, those with comorbidities and so on. Then specially vulnerable people and localities where there is a major outbreak. And then finally, all of a country's population. So this sounds very plausible and reasonable, right? That every country will get a certain amount of these vaccines that COVAX will buy and distribute, and it will be distributed equally uh, around the world. What was the flaw? Why did it fail? Well, first of all, of course, it was underfunded. It's only raised 5 billion of the estimated 24 billion that it wanted for 2021. And it's not been able to purchase the vaccines as required. Why isn't it able? because the design flaw is that it allows countries to negotiate bilateral deals with all these companies. In other words, a, a country can be a member of COVAX and yet go and sign up a deal with Pfizer or Moderna or AstraZeneca to buy up. And of course they can offer more, which is what they do. They can offer more than COVAX is offering. And therefore these companies sell to them rather than to COVAX. Now it's bad enough that COVAX pricing is not transparent in itself. But it's also the case that all of these governments rushed to go and do these side deals. 
And as I've already told you, within a month, these advanced country governments that account for 14%, not even 16, I'm sorry, 14% of the world's population, booked 85% of the production for this year. In 2020, there were 44 bilateral deals. We know of at least 20 already signed this year. There may well be more, because remember, a lot of these don't have to be made public. They can be secret. They are opaque. And we don't even know the pricing in some of these. And as I mentioned, Canada booked, actually it's not even 10, it's 11 times its population. US got more than four times what it needed. We don't know what the pricing always is. The WHO has made an estimate and says that the prices vary anywhere from $2.19 per dose to $40 per dose. And now the latest round of purchases, the second round of purchases that these governments are making, the same companies are now charging more for booster shots. So that Moderna, Pfizer, they've all raised their prices even with the US government. And uh, in some cases, uh, uh, some countries have had to pay as much as $72 per dose. And apparently, well, not apparently, but actually developing countries have often ended up paying more than advanced countries. So AstraZeneca cost $3.50 in the European Union, but $5.25 in South Africa. This is the company that explicitly declared it would not make profits during the pandemic, but it's charging more for this vaccine in many developing countries. So far, up till to date, three quarters of the vaccines available have gone to just 10 countries, and no surprises that these are all rich advanced countries. As a result of which, they're now sitting on large stockpiles of these vaccines. I mean, if you buy or order or buy four times what your population needs, obviously you're not going to be using all of them. And these are vaccines that expire. We know that the United States has been throwing away vaccines. And of course, it's quiet. We know that the US had 80 million AstraZeneca doses. And it was at originally it said it would distribute to other countries. Then it's got very quiet on that. So presumably those doses have had to be thrown away. Appallingly, even this year, when G7 met, when was it, in June or July, they said, we'll give 870 million doses. I mean, really, still pathetic numbers to COVAX and to other countries. And half of that by the end of this year. But so far, even that half has not been delivered. So really, you know, it's, the pace is nowhere near the global requirement. It's too slow. And the amazingness of rich countries throwing away vaccines rather than sharing it with other countries is something that is being widely noted in the developing world and is obviously leading to massive loss of credibility and faith of the rich countries. I mean, G7 cannot present itself as leaders of the world when they're so openly and blatantly leaders of their own little countries with the, you know, looking after their own little interests in a rather short-sighted and foolish manner. What's even more sickening is, I mean, of course, I already mentioned, in, in Africa, only 200 million vaccine doses have been administered altogether. So less than, I, I mean, very, very few uh, in relation to population, about 14, 15%. Some doses that were given as charity are given so late that they're close to expiration dates. Many African countries reported getting doses 
you know, 14 days away from their due dates. So they have to be destroyed because by the time, you know, they arrive at the port 14 days before they expire, by the time you get, the, get them to a centralized location and distribute them, you would be really on the verge of expiry. So you cannot use them. Now, the earlier assessment was that you would need at least 75% vaccination of the entire world to control the pandemic, to get what is called herd immunity. It's now being said because of the spread of the, uh, the new variants that you would need maybe 85% vaccination or you know, people who've had the disease plus those who are vaccinated to be around 80, 85%. But that level of vaccination is not gonna happen till two years from now at the current pace, which tells you that we are nowhere near solving this pandemic problem, even when it could be quite easily solved. So the supply issue, I told you that part of the reason that there's not enough is because of patents, of intellectual property rights that have given vaccine, uh, the companies that are producing these vaccines, big pharma basically, a monopoly on production. Once you have the patent right, you can limit the supply either to your own capacity or you can issue licenses to some others as you choose. So AstraZeneca, which has issued more licenses than others, has uh, issued to uh, you know, the Serum Institute of India and a couple of other companies around the world, but they choose whom they will issue it to and they do their business deals with those companies. Now, why do these companies have these patent rights? Patents are supposed to reward innovation, right? But I think I already told you that this is a situation where this is really public funding that enabled these companies to develop these vaccines. Uh, 12 billion in the US went to six companies. And in addition to the subsidies, the direct subsidies you were giving them to do the R&D, you then did pre-purchase orders. So that by the time, by December, 2020, these companies had already started making profits, forget covering costs. They had already started making very big profits. Uh, Pfizer has told its shareholders that it's estimating 24 billion, 24 billion dollars of profits in the current year. Now, I've, I've mentioned also mRNA vaccines basically used prior public research and you know, just the last mile development was done by these private companies that too with public subsidies. The AstraZeneca is another very interesting case. Again, we shouldn't really be calling it AstraZeneca. It was developed in an Oxford lab and it was entirely publicly funded, this lab, public and charity funding. But it was basically developed for public purpose by a public lab in a university. It was intended to be fully open source. The whole idea was that not only would they make the, you know, uh, develop this vaccine, but then they would put it all out there. They would put the data, the information, the knowledge, everything there openly on the website, and they would send researchers across the world to train companies everywhere to make this vaccine. It was 97% publicly funded, okay? So what happened? Why did it end up being called the AstraZeneca vaccine? Because the Gates Foundation gave, um, I think it was $45 million to Oxford, or million pounds, I'm sorry, to Oxford University for uh, various you know, scientific development, including the vaccine. And they persuaded Oxford University to go in for this deal with a single 
vaccine, uh, pharma producer, AstraZeneca. And so they basically just transferred this knowledge to one company rather than left it open for public knowledge as was originally intended. AstraZeneca now holds the patent. It originally promised that it would not make profits from this and it would sell at cost. Now that's a little dicey because what is cost for a company which has just been handed over uh, an entirely, you know, a, a technology which is uh, ready. What is exactly the cost that it's covering? And uh, it's and it, as we know, indulged in differential pricing across the world. But what is even more obscene is that today it has just announced that it is no longer going to forsake the profits because, according to them, the, the pandemic is now over. So they're now going to charge a rate that will actually provide reasonable profits according to them on this vaccine. Now, here's the thing, all this money going to big pharma is supposed to be to encourage them to keep doing more research and development, more technology development for the things that matter for public health and so on. But they don't really use their profits for that. Pfizer, for example, uh, in the years between 2007 and 2016, spent $139 billion on buybacks and dividends, share buybacks to increase their own share values, which then benefits the managers, and dividend distribution to shareholders. And what did they spend on R&D? Just $82 billion over this period. So, you know, it's not the case that giving them all this money is going to mean that they then spend that on the kinds of research that we need for drug development. Okay, now this is the context in which uh, these patent rights are enforced globally through the TRIPS agreement, the Trade-Related Intellectual Property Rights Agreement, uh, which is part of the WTO's uh, system. And in October last year, India and South Africa led a consortium of countries. Finally, there were 142 countries, I think, that were supporting it. And the idea was to give a waiver on all intellectual property rights during the course of the pandemic. That is that you would actually, for drugs, vaccines, diagnostics, testing, uh, treatment, all the things related to dealing with COVID-19, that you would actually do a waiver on the intellectual property. And that would enable enough supply of these vaccines and drugs and treatments and tests to deal with the pandemic. So until you got global herd immunity, just provide the waiver. Now, this is a very, very limited request. All it does is to say that a government can issue compulsory licenses without facing cases in the WTO. That's all it says. You see, TRIPS allows compulsory licenses, but we have now experienced that whenever a country tries to do that, saying that so-and-so company is behaving in a monopolistic way, it's extracting rents, it's preventing other people from getting knowledge. Uh, the minute it does that, then the home country of that multinational promptly brings a case against it to the WTO. So this was just a waiver that would enable more and more governments to do the compulsory licensing and uh, sharing of technology that would produce more of these vaccines, drugs, testing, kits, treatment, etc. This has been repeatedly blocked in the TRIPS Council by advanced country governments, uh, at least 11 times now since it was first brought. 
Now, what's surprising about this is that it's not just developing countries that would benefit. It would also be the populations of rich countries that would benefit because there would be more vaccines available quickly, larger supply would reduce the costs. We know that all these companies are now increasing the price they are charging even the rich countries, the US, the UK, France, Germany, et cetera. And so taxpayers are paying more. If you actually increase the supply, you would reduce the costs for governments and taxpayers across the world. In fact, your own population would benefit. But nonetheless, they have been opposing it. The Biden administration finally agreed to stop blocking the TRIPS waiver. And so people were very hopeful. This happened, I think, around June uh, 2021. But since then, it hasn't really pushed for it. So it made this big statement that we will no longer block it. But that's not good enough. You have to go out, you have to go there and persuade the others. You have to be actively pushing for this waiver to happen. Here's the position. Now, anybody who tells you that north-south divides don't exist just has to look at this particular map. This is from Médecins Sans Frontières. The countries that are opposing the TRIPS waiver, the countries that are supporting the TRIPS waiver, and the countries that are actively the ones that brought the case for the TRIPS waiver. So the red ones are the opposers of the TRIPS waiver. And as you can see, it's pretty much a north-south divide, with the exception of Brazil, which uh, Bolsonaro's Brazil would do anything, right? So. Uh, that's the exception there. Okay. Um, a lot of people who say we don't need the waiver say, well, anyway, WTO allows compulsory licensing. I mean, so why are you fussing? You can just do that. Now, remember, the comp a, a compulsory license is an authorization granted by a government to a company to produce a product or a process without the consent of the person who holds the patents. A lot of patents, uh, when you file for them, you have to give so much information that it is usually enough to enable someone else to produce. Uh, but some of these mRNA vaccines are so complicated that you would also need knowledge sharing. TRIPS officially allows compulsory licensing, but um, you know, as I said, there have been cases and in addition, you know, a lot of the free trade agreements, economic partnership agreements, bilateral investment treaties, they also explicitly prevent compulsory licensing. So why was this TRIPS waiver still important? Because, you know, a lot of these things, there's a huge number of patents involved. The mRNA vaccine production requires a, around 64 different approvals because of some processes patented, some material that's used is patented, some genetic code is patented and so on. And uh, so a, a waiver would just eliminate all that. You could, you, could not, you could forget about getting all 64 different approvals. You could just go ahead and try and produce. Notice, of course, that you still have to get the full knowledge. You need the full transfer of technology about how to make the thing. And sometimes the data you get in the patenting process is not enough. And that's apparently true for mRNA. So you would really need these companies to share their knowledge with new producers. And that can be done. It can be done. So the TRIPS waiver is only the first step. So how would you get these private companies to share their uh, data and their knowledge and, and actually teach others to do that? Well, really, because 
we know that there are producers. The WHO alone has a list of more than 200 companies across the world, everywhere from Thailand to New Zealand to Canada to um, Rwanda even, you know, that where they are, they have state-of-the-art facilities and they've applied for the licenses, but the companies are not giving them these licenses. Moderna has got all of its research money from the US government, all of it. It was, it, it, it didn't do vaccine. It was not a vaccine producer. It got into vaccines because the US government told it to do that. And it paid for the R&D, okay? The last mile R&D that I have mentioned. Uh, around 2 billion, I think they got from the US government. So, and in addition, the US government agencies hold some of the patents that are required for producing the Moderna vaccine. So the government could easily have told Moderna, you share your technology with the following other companies to make up uh, for, you know, to increase the production. This will be vital to distribute systemic risks, to build up, you know, manufacturing resilience so that you're not dependent on a few suppliers and to have local level essential pharmaceuticals. Uh, in different countries, in different regions. At the moment, the, the concentration is, is not just very unequal, it's actually killing people. We, we, are, we now know that patents are not just, uh, you know, bad in terms of creating monopolies and all of that, but they actually kill people. It's also the case that, you know, all this knowledge is global health commons, and it was created, as I keep repeating, by public money. But the way things are operating, countries are really thinking regionally, nationally, locally. Why is this crucial? Well, you know, even if we can cope with the COVID-19 pandemic, even if it takes another two years and so on, but finally we managed to bring it under control. This is not the last pandemic to happen. This is not the last major health threat we're going to face. We're going to face newer health threats even because of climate change and because of the new kinds of disaster that are coming on us. So we cannot know in advance which vaccines are going to be needed, which treatments are going to be needed. We need to invest in a range of assets and technologies. And if public sectors do that, it has to remain in public control. It has to be used for public purpose. Then there's another angle, which has to do with the WHO's regulatory approval. As I mentioned, Almost all, well, actually all of them until just two weeks ago uh, of these vaccines received only emergency authorization because of the speed. As I, as I think I told you, it used to take two to four years to get the full process of approval. And this is all, I mean, Pfizer got it in six weeks, right? Moderna got it in eight weeks. Very, very recently, uh, Pfizer has received the regular approval from the USD, uh, FDA. But otherwise, everybody's still operating. All the others are operating with emergency authorization. And other vaccine candidates in China, Russia, Cuba, India have been developed. But the WHO approval process is skewed in favor of companies based in the advanced economies. Now, you can say that this is, you know, it's not intentional, it just worked out that way. But basically, what, what, what happens? The WHO has a list of what it calls stringent regulatory authorities, the ones it trusts for quality control. No surprises where they are, they're all in the advanced economies, in Europe, US, Canada, Australia, Japan. Everywhere else you have to go through what is called pre-qualification, which is much more complicated, much more extended, it takes much longer. 
So, you know, uh, Sputnik, Sinopharm, Sinovac, they all applied before the Pfizer vaccine. But Pfizer got approved by mid-October. Sinopharm and Sinovac got approved uh, October 2020, I'm sorry. Sinopharm and Sinovac got approved only in early 2021. Sputnik is still not approved. The Indian uh, vaccine, Covaxin, which was created within India and it uses a different, more traditional technology, was just approved last week. So there is this basic skewed thing. Then, of course, there's the whole fact that, you know, Big Pharma doesn't really want uh, this pandemic to be controlled because that will reduce its profits. When you get new variants and you get breakthrough in infections of vaccinated people, that's when you need booster vaccines. So first you want to you know, increase the range of people whom you can vaccinate, the young, children, et cetera. And a lot of uh, epidemiologists and virologists have said that it's not really strictly obvious that you should be vaccinating children. But now, of course, the mandate has been given to also vaccinate children very small children, two years old onwards. And of course, boosters. Now, boosters are obscene. There's no other word for it. I think even uh, Dr. Tedros, the head of WHO said this. Uh, they're obscene because people in the developing world are still not even getting the first vaccine for heaven's sake. And you're giving boosters to people who are not satisfied with only 76% protection. Now they want back to 98% protection. But as long as you have the situation where the virus is around, it is uh, endemic, it can revive and create new mutants and new varieties, then you will require booster shots. So prolonging the pandemic or making it endemic and requiring continuous vaccination is in the interests of big pharma. And that's really why big pharma is not keen on vaccinating the whole world, etc. And that's, uh, that's, understandable from the perspective of Big Pharma, but it is ridiculous from the point of view of governments and societies that we are going along with this. When it's all available, when the knowledge is available, when it was all done with public support, and anyway, look, governments can make companies do what they want in terms of sharing the technology, yet we allow Big Pharma to do this and to prolong this pandemic and to allow people to die in the developing world. And of course, I already mentioned the surplus doses that are being thrown away. I am a member of a WHO Council on the Economics of Health for All. It's headed by Mariana Matsukato. And uh, we have produced uh, a bunch of, uh, well, only two briefing papers. We're just working on the third one at the moment. But our first briefing paper was actually on controlling innovation, uh, regulating innovation from the perspective of the public good. And we made a bunch of recommendations. We said, you have to show vaccine solidarity, that any country that has got doses uh, beyond 20%, well, now, in fact, we had said 20% then, but now let's even say 50%, because so many rich countries have already vaccinated more than 50% of their population, that all their existing stocks should be redistributed as soon as possible, giving to COVAX, giving to other developing countries as soon as possible. We have again argued for a waiver of the IPRs to scale up uh, the technologies and access to all of the COVID-related technologies without fear of the legal constraints. 
We have argued that it is possible to make companies share their knowledge and transfer technology. By the way, this doesn't mean that they, you have to give it away. You can charge something, you can give compensation, you can say that we will pay you this much for this license. To CTAP, the WHO's technology access pool, or even just directly to other producers, especially the vaccines that were done with public money. Now, all of this, of course, also requires supply chain resilience. Why is that important? Because it turned out that, for example, the production of AstraZeneca in many different countries, including in India, was being held up because some of the essential raw materials that were produced in the US, uh, the US had imposed an export ban. It was imposed by Donald Trump, but it wasn't lifted by the Biden administration until just a few months ago. And so we really need to ensure much better supply chain resilience, which requires a more decentralized approach. It shouldn't be that it's all concentrated in some countries that can then use this either politically or otherwise. And of course, you have to generate more decentralized production overall. You have to create manufacturing resilience. The African continent has already realized this, has realized that you cannot rely on the rest of the world. And they are really going in now for vaccine production on a regional basis. And I think they're also therefore encouraging more industrial policy on a regional basis, simply because they have realized there is no good trying to depend on so-called charity or solidarity or any of those things because they don't exist. Now, this is actually a huge problem because, you know, let's face it, this COVID pandemic was a relatively small problem. You know, it, it wasn't such a big deal. Um, Consider climate change. That's so much bigger, more intractable, requires so much more resources, and is actually the trouble with it is that while it is a global phenomenon, it's expressed locally. There will be certain cities, there will be certain small island states that will be submerged by water. There will be some parts of the world that will be desertified. There will, there will be other parts of the world that will face forest fires. They will be local. And so why is this frightening? Because if governments can't get together to solve this relatively easy problem and place profits before people in completely irrational ways, then can you imagine what they're going to do with climate change? I mean, we've seen already that COP26 produced nothing, but we also, when the big, big things start happening, there isn't going to be this cooperation, solidarity, and that, frankly, really means that humanity will not survive because this is an exist existential threat. It's not just you know, a, a little bad thing that can happen. This is a serious, serious threat that can lead to a devastation of life as we know it. So we, we obviously have to rethink, and it's not just the economics that requires rethinking, it's the politics. And I think on that unfortunately depressing note, I will end. Gayati, thank you very much as usual, a fascinating and challenging uh, talk. Kevin, can I call on you to for a 10 minute response, please? Thank you, James, and thank you, Jayati. It, it's always a, a little daunting going after Jayati, and that was a really magisterial overview. So re really big thank you for, for that. Um, may, maybe let, let me start where Jayati left it. There, there's a wonderful book by William McNeil called Plagues 
and people. And it's, it's a study of responses to epidemic threats over the long run of history. And, and, and prompted by COVID-19, actually, I read that book recently. And one of the extraordinary things about it is that in many ways, the level of cooperation that was happening in the 19th century in response to threats from cholera and other major infectious disease threats was more advanced in some ways than the levels of international cooperation that we've seen in response to COVID. And I'll come back to that in a moment. But I do think it's worth saying that the backdrop to what JRT is describing is an epidemic outside of war in okay. modern history. The, this, uh, we, we've had the first rise in poverty in over 25 years. We've got child mortality, which has been coming down quite sharply over a very long period, um, starting to rise again. Malnutrition rising, the disruption of immunization programs, the loss of employment. The, these are very dramatic effects unfolding in, in India, where Jayati is speaking from, but, but actually around the world. And so the international response has to be viewed partly against that backdrop. It has to be viewed partly against the backdrop of the epidemic itself. And it sounds like a platitude to say no one is safe until everybody is safe, but that is the truth. And if you have large unimmunized populations anywhere, they constitute a threat to people everywhere. And sooner or later, there will be variants which go under the radar of the protection provided by immunization. And so this is an epidemic, I think, which demanded by virtue of its impact and by virtue of the nature of the public health threats that it poses, an international cooperation response of a very high order. And what, what we've had is almost the antithesis of that. And if you start with the international cooperation part of the story, I think the model right from the beginning through COVAX and the ACT-A architecture, as it's called, under the WHO umbrella, was really a trickle-down model. That, you know, that the initial targets for vaccinating populations in developing countries was very low. I think it was, uh, it was subsequently raised to 20% by the end of the year. But you know, who, who came up with the idea that vaccinating 20% was a credible and realistic target? It, it clearly is not a credible and realistic target. And moreover, even that target was um, underfunded. The, I think the second point to make about international cooperation is the way in which the very countries that developed the ACT-A architecture, that developed COVAX, have actively undermined it. And the, the issue there, I think, is it, it, not just financing. Jati is right, there was a big financing gap in COVAX. Actually, the, co the, the, the financing gap for the, for the vaccine part of the ACT-A architecture has actually closed quite dramatically. But the problem is that rich countries are using their market power to corner 
the supply through using future options um, of supply. And I don't think this part of the story is fully understood that if you look at the excess stocks that are held uh, under options in rich countries by the first quarter of next year will be around 1.6 billion doses. Now, when, when I talk about surplus stocks, this is on the assumption that you not only double vaccinate the entire eligible populations of G7 countries, you not only provide a booster shot to everybody over 50, but you vaccinate down to the age of 12. And so to my mind, this is a straightforward abuse of market power. There have been other examples of the abuse of market power, Johnson & Johnson exporting vaccine doses from South Africa to the European Union, the South African government being warned by the European Union that any attempt to interfere with those exports would be met with trade sanctions. The, the, these are untold stories, but I think they do need to be brought out much more forcefully in the way that um, JRT has described. Um, I think the, th the, the third point I, I wanted to make was around the position of pharmaceutical companies in international markets. And in areas of public health, I think governments nationally and international responsibility ha have a responsibility to their citizens to ensure that production and supply is aligned to need. I mean, th this is a fundamental responsibility of, uh, of governments, which is widely recognized. The, the interests of companies are divergent. They're, they're not the same as the public interest in this area. And you know, there's a long history to this, which I'm not gonna go into here, but who wrote the intellectual property rules that are currently enshrined in multilateral trade? It was Pfizer. And that happened during the Uruguay round of trade negotiations. Um, and the corporatization of multilateral trade rules, I believe, is at the heart of the problem that we're facing here. That we, we need the TRIPS waiver for all of the reasons that JRT ha has outlined. But we also need to understand that this is a wider regulatory challenge. And I've, I've actually got a great quote from Albert Buller, who's the CEO of Pfizer who, when he was announcing the company's most recent profit estimates to shareholders, said, uh, we have done, th these results reflect the extraordinary job we have done in vaccinating the world. Now, it's very clear, Pfizer is not vaccinating the world. It has very little interest in vaccinating the world. And when the pharmaceutical companies have pressed on this issue of why is it that you're not honoring your COVAX delivery schedule, um, vaccine deliveries, and you are honoring your delivery schedules for countries in the European Union and the US that are already oversupplied, that are already overstocked, that are sitting on huge doses, I think around 600 million doses that will um, expire. And their response off the record is that COVAX don't sue us. Now, 
the, the, this is the realities of the world in which pharmaceutical companies are making decisions. I believe there's a debate there, which maybe we'll come back to, James, about the responsibility of shareholders and investors in holding companies to account for defending the public interest. You know, we've been here before with the HIV AIDS vaccines and other issues as well, which is worth reminding ourselves of. The, the final point I just wanted to make, uh, James, if, if I may, is, you know, I, I think in every era, there are tensions between the public interest and corporate interest in multilateralism and, of course, in many areas of domestic policy. And the way those tensions play out uh, are, of course, shaped by the politics of the day. And in, in the 1980s and early 90s, you know, we had the Reagan administration, we, we had the US administrations who were actively advancing a corporate agenda through what was the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade and became the, the World Trade Organization. The, the current political context for this is the resurgence, not just of nationalism, but of populist nationalism. And populist nationalism plays out in very ugly ways when the public health of citizens uh, is at stake. And I, I do think there's a sort of challenge that's incumbent on all of us, whether in academia, or the media or beyond, to think about the narratives and the arguments that can win the public debate here. This is not just a matter, I mean, it is a matter of right and wrong, but more critically, it's a matter of winning the argument. And we need to win the argument in a context which is clearly hostile to international cooperation and multilateralism at the moment. Thank you, James. Thank you, Kevin, as usual. Very insightful. Jayati, I'm very conscious that we're keeping you up. It's the middle of the night in Delhi where you are. So I'm wondering if you would like to have a last word before we sign off. Well, no, that's, that's it. Thank you so much. And I, I just want to completely reinforce Kevin's point. You know, 85% um, of the total additional fiscal spending since the pandemic started, according to the IMF, came from only 10 countries. 55% of it came from the US. The US spent $25,000 per head. Additionally, low-income countries spent $2 per head, additionally. So that's the kind of difference we're talking about. Yes, it's monumental. Jayati, I, I really want to thank you again for joining us. And all the, I thought you were going to be speaking from Massachusetts all the way from Delhi. This was fine. It was a pleasure. And Kevin, thanks so much for, for, for coming to the series again. And of course, we want both of you back as soon as we can have you. Um, and uh, I know I'm speaking for all the students when I when I say that you know this has been very enlightening and really of the moment and of really urgent importance. So thank you very much. And thanks to everybody else. And I remind you that next week, Agnes Kalibata, who's the uh, at the head of the Green Revolution for Africa and recently on behalf of the Secretary General chaired the very controversial food summit in Africa is going to be speaking to us next week, at the same time with Ian Schoons, uh, a radical scholar of agriculture in the IDS coming to comment. So we expect to see you all there then. 
Thanks so much, Jayati. Thanks for tuning into this lecture recording from the Cutting Edge Issues in Development, Thinking and Practice series for 2021-2022. To hear more, don't forget to subscribe to our channel on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch any of these lectures back on our YouTube channel. Just search YouTube for International Development LSE. Stay informed about upcoming events, including the next Cutting Edge Lectures, by searching for events on the LSE Department of International Development website, or just follow us on Twitter at LSE underscore ID for the latest updates.